The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Titus chapter 2. I'm thankful that in a chaotic world where people say absurd things on television, on the radio, to one another, to themselves, that there is a voice of truth that steadily makes sense out of our chaos. I'm thankful that we can all go to the Word of God tonight and that the Bible speaks to us tonight, as that song said. I've got to tell you, if there was one song that I think would be just an awesome song to be like the theme for our church, I think that would be it. I love that song. I wish I wrote that song. The words are just fantastic because it is God does speak to us and he's using his word and we can trust it. And as the people of God, if we don't have the foundation of God's word to build our lives upon, we have nothing. We have no sure foundation. So either the word is true and everything we're doing tonight and everything we're doing as believers for all of our lives is of the utmost importance or the word is not true and all of this is a sham. And all of this is vain. Those are the options. And so for us as believers, we need to to go back to the Bible again and again and again and trust it and follow it and believe it because that is God speaking to us. Um, The verses tonight that we'll be in are verses that you could again hang your hat on. They're, They're a good mantra for your lives. It is, this is what God has done. This is who he, this is who he is. This is who I am. And this is what my life is now all about. It's very simple verses tonight. I'm looking forward to getting back back into the book of Titus. Um, We've slowed our pace toward the end of Titus chapter 2 a little bit. And we're going to be, we've done two verses last week. We'll do two verses tonight and then probably one verse next week. But Titus chapter 2 is one of those chapters in the Bible that is absolutely packed with truth. And packed with truth that is very practical for our lives. So hopefully it's worth it to slow down and and take our time to go through this. Um, In chapter 2, Paul has instructed Titus to teach individuals in the church how to behave to to the benefit of the church body as a whole. That we are to behave in a certain way, but it's not just for our benefit, though it is. It's also for the benefit of, of one another. That we're all in this thing together. That old men and older women have responsibility to the younger women and the younger men. Um, that slaves are to act a certain way, that all of us have a duty to act in a way that makes the gospel beautiful in our lives. The gospel is a beautiful thing, and so it should be reflecting in our lives that beauty. Our lives should be changing to line up with what the Word of God says. Last week, in verses 11 to 12, Paul unpacked for Titus the reason that godly living is of the utmost importance. And the reason is, that the grace of God that brings salvation to all people teaches us something. It's not just grace that saves you. It's grace that changes you. It's not just for your past. It's not just for your future. It's for the here and now, for today. And so grace teaches us that we say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. Grace teaches us that we say yes to soberness, to clear thinking, to right thinking. We say yes to righteousness, which is right deeds. We say yes to godliness, living and walking in the Spirit. Even in the midst of this present world, we are called to be different, to be transformed people. Now, these verses deal very specifically with our actions. If you notice, every single one of those things can be seen. 
I mean, the way you think, it's going to change. The way you act, the way you love God, the way you follow him, the things you say yes to, the things you say no to, they're actions. But I believe here in, in verse 13, we're going to get into more of um, the motivation and what's supposed to be changing, what we're supposed to be focusing on that's going to help us continue in these actions. Because if any person is honest that living the Christian life, it's, it's a battle, it's a struggle. But what's great is, the Bible gives us what's necessary, what we need, the motivation we need to live that Christian life in victory. Our problem is, often we neglect it. And often we try and do too much in our own strength. And so here I hope that as we look at Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, you will be motivated and encouraged to live out your faith, to find the strength that, is, that comes in the hope of Christ's second coming. We'll begin reading in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Believers are supposed to be expecting and looking forward to something. When I was a child, I was very easily excited about things. So if there was an event coming up, like Christmas, or like a vacation, then every single time I would think about that thing, I would get excited inside. And, And it got so bad sometimes that I actually couldn't sleep. I remember a number of Christmases, and this would be like the nightmare for all parents, that I I literally was up to 3 or 4 a.m. trying to sleep, but not being able to sleep, because I was so excited about the next day and what was to come. I remember when I was 12 years old, I opened up the window of my bedroom. We had a a ranch-style house, so it wasn't like I jumped out like the whole, like, two stories. But I, I opened up the bedroom window. I wasn't allowed to leave my room through the door. That's why I went through the window. And I ran around our block in PJs on Christmas Eve. Like, I was just so pumped. And the truth is, there's an aspect of that in my life that I kind of miss. I kind of miss the excitement as a child of that that thing that's coming that you're so excited for. I hope that you've experienced that feeling at some point in your life. We have all read about the joys of heaven. We've heard of them preached. Um, we, we've thought about them. We've had studies on heaven. But when's the last time that the thought of heaven filled you with a sense of joy, of excitement, of anticipation, of curiosity? When's the last time you thought about heaven and it wasn't just, let me figure out in the Bible what it's going to be like, but it's this longing for this place that we're destined for that we're, we're supposed to be hoping for and confident of and excited about, that we're supposed to be setting our mind upon. When's the last time that we allowed the thought of heaven to really excite us? It doesn't happen very often, does it? But what Paul says here is that we are supposed to be looking for that blessed hope. Now, I understand that, that looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, that he's referring there to the second coming, right? He's referring to Christ coming back. But what I'm trying to get at here is when we're talking about Christ coming back, and we're talking about us going to heaven, all those things are just the hope of the future. Okay? You really can't separate those things. 
well. And so we ought to be excited about heaven. Um, This verse here has received a lot of scrutiny because it raises two questions. The first question is, what is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing? And there are some people that look at those two things and they say those are separate events. There is the blessed hope and there's the glorious appearing. So they say the blessed hope is the rapture of the church and the the glorious appearing is the second coming of Christ. Um, Grammatically, it is more natural to see those this statement as one event. It could be separated, and it can be, but I don't think that's the point that Paul is trying to make right now. I think what he's trying to say is that grace teaches you to live soberly and righteously in this present evil world. He doesn't say evil there, but understand that he's speaking that way, that we are to live different from the world around us, and while we do that, we're to be looking forward to something. We're to be looking for the blessed hope. I don't think he's trying to give us a lesson on how the eschatological timeline works. I think he's trying to tell us, be excited about what's coming in the future because there's victory. There's, there's the coming of your Savior coming back. And so I, I think that's what Paul is doing here. And I don't think that that question really makes a lot of difference to how this text impacts us. The second question is, is Paul referring to two different people in the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, or is he referring to Jesus Christ as the great God and Savior? And that's another really interesting question. And again, the grammar here, it indicates that he is referring to those those two statements are about the same person, that Jesus is the great God and Savior. In the King James, the word our is placed before our Savior Jesus Christ, But in actuality, it probably should be placed in the our great God and Savior. So the our should come before the great God and Savior because those two things are are, are linked with a definite article, meaning they're most likely the same thing. Now, if this was the only place in the entire Bible that showed that Jesus was God, we might say, okay, well, maybe we should just try and read this differently. But it's not. And so what Paul is saying here is consistent with what all of Scripture teaches, that Jesus Christ is God. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Read verse 14, and it is abundantly clear that that Word is Jesus Christ. The Word that is God is Jesus Christ. John 20, 28, Thomas is speaking to to Jesus. And so he looks directly at Jesus, and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts that worship, accepts that praise, because he is Thomas's. Lord and God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes um, that he is Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the righteousness of Jesus. And so clearly, again, we see Jesus is God. Hebrews 1, verse 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Speaking to the Son, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. It's all over the Bible. One last one, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul Paul is speaking to the church of Ephesus, um, the leaders there. And he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he 
has purchased with his own blood. The antecedent of he is God. And it's Christ that purchased the church with his own blood. So the church of God is the church of Jesus. And you cannot separate those two things. Countless times throughout scripture, Jesus is worshipped as God and he accepts that worship. The attributes that only God has, that only God can have, are also applied to Jesus. And the acts that God has done, it's said that Jesus did those things. And so we cannot read scripture and come up with anything other than Jesus Christ is God. Now you say, Dan, you're really hitting this point hard. Why is it so important? Most of us already believe that. Okay, I, I understand that. Um, most of us, hopefully all of us, do already believe this. But this point is of the utmost importance. Everything we believe rests on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. It is the only question that is ever asked by an unbeliever that a believer can never ask. Is Jesus God? Well, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not a believer. It is essential. And yet I understand from an outside perspective, people come at the Bible and say, well, why can't I just see Jesus as this really good person? Why can't I see Jesus as this um, wonderful teacher who was a prophet of God and, and, and a person sent by God and a messenger of God? Why do I have to push him to that extent of deity? Don't you think that I can still like worship him and follow his teaching without seeing him as God? The answer is absolutely not. Jesus is either God incarnate in the flesh or he is a fraud. He is a liar. He is a blasphemer. C.S. Lewis put this best. He said, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so we worship Jesus as God. And as God alone, and if, if there's any other thought, we're dead wrong. And so we are looking forward to the day, that blessed hope, when Christ will come again, when all things will be made right. Verse 14, he continues, he says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The, the flow of Paul's argument here is almost identical to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and, and 10. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. Paul here is saying almost the exact same thing. And what's interesting here is that, again, we see that it's the people of God, and yet it's Jesus doing the one that's, that's calling this peculiar people out for himself, who is God. So doing the exact same thing here together. 
Jesus is calling out for himself a peculiar people. Here, Paul is highlighting that redemption means more than just one thing. It means more than just you've been saved from eternal hell. He's highlighting that redemption is something that impacts your future and it impacts today. And and the purpose of redemption is to do both. And if it's not doing both, it's not fulfilling its purpose. Here Paul is also highlighting the cost of redemption. That he gave himself for us to purchase us. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we read, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, how much more should the blood of Christ and the knowledge that Jesus sacrificed himself for you, that he died, he was tortured, he bled and died for you, what other thing could possibly motivate you to good works? How could you need more than that? That the God of heaven became a man and and gave his blood in your place, paid the punishment that you owe. What other motivator would you possibly need to stop sinning and to start doing good works? And this argument, the one that Paul is making here, the one that the writer of Hebrews makes, it's found everywhere in the Bible. I would almost say this is Paul's favorite argument. In just about every case where Paul ever gives a command, he always gives a motivation. And the motivation is always Christ shed blood for you. It's always the gospel. Over and over again. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, he says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us for an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You should walk in love. Why? Because Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Galatians 1 verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present world according to the will of God and our Father. Christ has given himself for you. Why? To deliver you, so that you're not the same as the evil present world. The point being made in all these verses is that redemption was made at a great cost to the Redeemer. That the redeemed have been saved from eternal punishment to a life of godly living. God saved you from the penalty of sin and also from the power of sin. Romans chapter 7 verses, sorry, Romans chapter 7 and 8, if you want to get a detailed version of this, go to Romans 7 and 8 and read those when you get home. Detailed version of how you've been saved from the power and the penalty of sin. And so we get to application. Have Have you ever listened to a sermon and you went through the text and then you got to the application part and you were just just blown away by the the cleverness and the ingenuity of the preacher as they were able to find an application in the text that it's not even really there. Have you ever, have you ever been at a church service like that? I remember going to some services as a teenager and actually being amazed like, wow, how did he find that there? And now I go and I'm like, that's not there. That's it's not there. That's why I don't I don't know, he's made it up. But sometimes you just marvel at at people's ability to add to the Bible. And I think sometimes we have this desire to be really clever and to, I don't know, maybe appear very smart. As you will see, my application tonight is not exactly brain surgery or rocket science, but it is alliterated. So that's something. Number one, we are called 
to be a hopeful people. We are called to be a hopeful people, to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. This is something that we should want to do. It's something that should bring us comfort and strength. This is something we ought to do. It's something that we're commanded to do. It's a part of Paul's command to allow grace to transform our lives today. And the strength that you'll receive to transform your lives today, as he's commanded, is to be constantly looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. To be constantly looking for the, and thinking about the hope that is in the future. Notice that the hopefulness that we have is rooted in the character of God. We're looking for that blessed hope of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word great here is megas. It's mega. It's the only time in the Bible it appears, and it's just greatness and strength and might and size. I mean, the, the awesomeness of God. We're waiting for the awesome God, the mega God, to come back and appear. How incredible is that? That he is not only awesome, but he's God, he's a deity, and that he's the Savior, that he's the deliverer, the rescuer. See, this is the irony of, of the gospel, that we have a God who is greater than our minds can imagine. He's unfathomable. And yet, this God, who is greater than we can imagine, came to rescue people who are worse than we ever imagined. Our, sin, un, our sinfulness is worse than we can imagine, right? We're not just people who sin. We're sinners to the core. It's our very nature. And we're sinning against that great and awesome God. But the response of the great and awesome God, who is holy and a just judge, isn't just to condemn us, it's to to devise a rescue plan to come and save us. And so he is the great God and Savior. And we can have hope because of who he is above anything else. From start to finish in the Bible, one message is clear. God is a saving God. He longs to save us from spiritual and eternal death. And Paul is highlighting the fact that God is a Savior, so that we will highlight it in our minds and in our lives. It should be a theme. We can now await the day of his return with joy and confidence because of who he is. This life can be incredibly cruel and difficult. Um, Over the past few years, I've seen this, I think, more in my life, just in, in the folks around my life. Um, than I've ever seen it before. I've seen pain in disease, the pain both that the person with the disease goes through and the pain that the family members go as they watch that. Um, I've seen the fear of the unknown, of the unknown diagnosis, of the unknown future, of um, the loss of employment and the unknown where the next check is going to come from, how the rent's going to be. I've seen those things in people. I've seen people lose loved ones seeing people struggle to make sense of events that just they just don't make sense. And how do you make sense of something that doesn't make any sense? I've seen the power of the mind to wreak havoc in a person's life. And when we look at this world, we see it is it is it is painful. It is cruel. It is difficult. I've seen people run full speed towards sin with no thought of the immense destruction that they're leaving in their wake. No thought of all those around them. They're going to be destroyed by what they're doing. Life is cruel and difficult. 
And it can be overwhelming at times. It can be heartbreaking and it can be crushing. I'm sure you felt that too. So what are we to do? We remind ourselves of the return of Christ. That every wrong will one day be made right. That every sin will be punished. That every smirk will be wiped off the face of the sinner. And that every tear will be wiped off the face of the saint. That the brokenness of this world is not forever. That cancer is a temporary problem. That every dictator will be dethroned. That the lies and the deception of this world will be revealed and will be set right. That truth will prevail, that justice will be served, that the curse will be reversed. We remind ourselves that Jesus will come. And when he comes, at that moment, every difficulty we face today will be a difficulty of the past. Every problem will be solved in an instant. Can you imagine a life without the cares of this world? Can you imagine a life without disease and without pain and without sadness and without loss and without destruction, without unknown? Can you imagine a life like that? That's what we look forward to. That's what happens when Jesus comes. That's what happens when we go to be with him forever. So what are we to do in the light of the destruction in the misery of the world, we're to find hope in Jesus' return. We're to be a hopeful people. Number two, we are called to be a humble people. It's not explicit here in this verse, but I think that the Bible over and over again reminds us of this. It says, who gave himself for us. That Christ made a voluntary sacrifice on our behalf that it was a substitutionary sacrifice, that what he did was not done for him or because of anything he did, and it wasn't done simply because he couldn't overpower those people who were doing it to him. That all of it was a, a plan devised by God to pay for our sin. That it was a personal sacrifice. That it's because of my sin. I don't want to beat a dead horse. I think we say this often, but I'm amazed at how often the Bible does remind us that we ought to be a humble people. That there is no part of Titus chapter 2 that gives us any reason to think highly of ourselves. That everything good that ever comes from the believer's life comes because of the grace of God, because of the redemption that we have in Christ. That nothing good about us is, is, set, is set here. And this is not meant to, to hurt our self-esteem or anything. The truth is, the fact that the God, the deity, the, the creator of heaven and earth loved us so much to die for us, that gives us incredible value and worth. That is something that we should, that's where we should go to run to, to find strength and to find our value. But here we should be humbled at the fact that when Jesus died, it was because of us. It was because of you. It was because of me. That our sin put him there. It's because of our wretchedness. It's not the wretchedness and the sinfulness of the, the, the liberal down the street or the person, I mean, it's, it's not the dictator, it's not, it's us. And so we ought to be humble. We are called to be humble people. Number three, we are called to be holy people. Verse 14 is that who gave himself for us, why? Why was that sacrifice made? Such an incredible, such an unfathomable sacrifice. That he might redeem us from all iniquity, 
and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. What if I told you that the grace of God was so powerful that it could transform your life? That, that you could, by God's grace, be an entirely different person, that you did not any longer have to live in the sin that, that's plagued you for your whole life, that you could have victory over those things, that you could be a person who loves other people and finds joy in God, and that you're not always following your own sinful lust because you've found greater pleasure in the presence of God. What if I told you that all of those things that we know the Bible says are true really are true, and you just saw it happen in your life? And then I said, unfortunately, you're going to die and go to hell. Now, here's the great thing. It's going to change your life. It's going to be awesome. Everybody's going to look at you and they're going to be like, wow, God's grace is amazing. Do you see how it took that person? Do you see how it took Miles and made him something way different than what he is right now? What, how incredible would that be? Everybody would look and they'd be so impressed with how powerful God is to change a, a, a wicked sinner into um, somebody who lived a righteous and holy life. But it's just not powerful enough to save you eternally. Would that make any sense at all? I mean, you'd think that was ridiculous. Oh yeah, God's grace is going to save me today so I can go to, it's going to save me from the, the power of sin in my life so I can go to hell forever. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But we are so okay with the thought that God's grace is so powerful that it's going to save me forever that I will not have to go to hell, that I'm going to be saved from the wrath to come. What, a, what an incredible thing God's grace is. And maybe, if I'm lucky, I'll change a little bit along the way. Like there'll be a, maybe a little bit of reform in my life. Maybe I, I won't do this thing that I'm doing now, but basically I'm going to be the same person until I die. Praise the Lord for his grace because, I mean, we're, we seem to be more okay with that statement than we are with the first, aren't we? But do you see what he said here? The reason that he gave himself for us is that he could redeem us, that he could purchase us back from all iniquity, so that's from the, the penalty of our sin, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Those two things go together. They're, they're not separated in that sentence. They are one in the same. Those things are happening together. We are being saved from wrath to come, and we are being purified as a peculiar people to God who are zealous of good works. There is a dual purpose in redemption. Purify is meant to, to um, help us picture this idea of a, of a silversmith taking gold and putting it through the fire and purifying that metal so it gets more and more pure. And that's what's supposed to be happening for the Christian. The, the, the grace of God is powerful enough to save us and to transform us. There's not, there's not this limit I know I'm guilty of this, guys. I know that there are times that I look at other people and I think, I'm content with where I'm at now because I think God has changed some things in my life, but I don't ever expect to be like so-and-so. Because he's just too impressive. He's out of my league. That's such wrong thinking, not because I'm... Maybe I think that I'm showing some kind of humility by saying that, but that is doubting the grace of God to transform me. 
if the grace of God could transform so-and-so, then the grace of God can transform Dan Christians. And the grace of God can transform your name, insert your name there. And you can become an incredible saint. A, a, a saint who is more and more mature every day in Christ, who is loving and feeling. Don't you ever get tired of it? Here, we're supposed to be becoming zealous of good works, right? The idea of zealous is to be eager and to be excited about good works. Don't you ever tire of feeling like good works are a chore? Like you did it because you know you're supposed to and you know it's your duty, but it was so hard. And sometimes you wish you just didn't have to keep doing it again and again. Don't you tire of that feeling? Don't you wish you were at the point where it was just a joy to serve the Lord and a joy to do that good thing because you were truly zealous and passionate about good works? Don't we want this to, to just not be in any way, shape, or form a facade? We ought to. So either Paul is off his rocker. Either Paul is insane when he's saying that somehow the grace of God is going to save us eternally and transform us into a peculiar people. The word peculiar, it means a purchased people or an owned people. So it's the people of God, a special people that God owns. We, that's what, we're supposed to be a very distinct group of people, and when, when others look at us, what they see is a people that are zealous of good works. Do you think Paul is crazy in saying that that's what should be happening to you? Or do you think maybe we've just believed the lie that nominalism is okay? That it's okay for us not to, not to take those next steps in our growth? I think sometimes we get content. And that's unfortunate. We ought to be zealous of good works. We should be hopeful, humble, and holy people. That's what we're being called to in this text. Paul lays out a pattern for us that we are saved from the penalty of sin, that God has broken the power of sin in our lives, that he's given us hope to overcome the darkness, that we are motivated now to be godly people eager to do good works. So the question is, where are you at? Where did you get stuck? What is the next step for you? I think if we'd really think about these verses in our lives, we'd really think about the sacrifice that Christ made on behalf and the hope that we have. If we'd spend time just dwelling on the hope and being excited about that hope and, and, and longing for Christ to come, if we'd get there, then the idea of having some passion for holiness, passion to do good works, it wouldn't seem so crazy. It'd be something we would we truly long to do. That's my prayer for my life. I hope that as I grow, I will grow in grace. And I hope that's your prayer for your life too. Let's pray.